Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dr. Philip Lancaster, Dr. Bob Larson, Dr. Brian Lubers. Good morning, guys. Good morning, Brad. Good morning. Happy to have you with us and happy to have you guys with us listening as well. So we've got a, a good plan for today is we're going to talk about several things that are relevant, including how to manage some of those cold cows if you're having to cold cows because of the dry weather. We'll also talk about the opposite side of the equation. If we're adding cows to our herd, what are some of our considerations there? As well as a research spotlight from Kristen Smith, who's going to talk some about late day bovine respiratory disease. And then we'll touch on a couple product related items. One, some of the items that are coming out to manage greenhouse gas and cattle production. And two, over-the-counter antibiotics in food animal medicine and what is the future of those. We'll get Dr. Luber's opinion on what will happen with some of those over-the-counter antibiotics. Before we jump into that, a couple announcements. One, we as a BCI Cattle Chat crew are having a photo contest. We want to see your photos. You've probably noticed we put out some information on social media. We put out other places. We want to see some of your best cattle photos and we're going to have a contest and the top three are going to get a prize. So you can email those to us at bci at ksu.edu and we're looking for high resolution photos, horizontal if possible. And we'd like to see what kind of photos you have of your cattle and your operation. Before we jump into the show, it is that time of year, fair food. Oh, yes it is. It is, it is definitely county fair, state fair. We are ready for fair food. What's your favorite one? There, there's so many good ones. Uh, uh, oh, I'm, I'm actually picturing them in my mind. You know, one of them. No, 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 wait, I'm gonna ask you a different question. Okay. What's your most overrated fair food? The one that you think should be good, but isn't that good? Uh, the deep fried cookie dough. It, you know, it just sounds awesome, and I was underwhelmed. Yeah. Deep fried candy bar would fall into that same category. I didn't realize that, and maybe it was just the one I had, but it was a candy bar in a corn dog wrapper, which just all melted on the inside. Maybe that's how it was supposed to be, yeah. but it wasn't that enjoyable. But, Brian, but, most but over the concept is still really good. The concept is valid, but the the execution, at least the one I had, Brian, overrate most overrated fair food. You know, I I don't know if I have an overrated one. I I tend to get in a rut with fair food, and I know what I like, and I stick with what I like. So, uh, come come back. Give me a second. Let me think about that one, Philip. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I'm trying to think of some of the different ones that I've I've tried. Um, but I mean, some some of the old old favorites like the funnel cakes and the the fried um, what are they what are they called? I forget what they're called, but like the spiral potatoes. Oh yeah, yeah. things you know. Well, one of the things that that if you want to go back to the oldies, but a goodie, I mean, you're, everyone is supposed to love cotton candy. I think cotton candy is kind of overrated. Yeah, I. I guess some of the overrated ones for me are the ones that, you know, they've kind of become mainstream, the dipping dots, the roasted nuts, you know, those things. I, I go to the fair. I, sorry, I'm a native Kansan. The Prano pup still, oh, still yeah. does it for me. So gotta, gotta have that fair food anytime you go. So hopefully you're having a good fair season and things are going well for you, but we also know at this time of year, and we've talked a little bit about dry areas of the country where people have talked about early weaning or sending cows to town what are some of the things to think about if I if I may be thinking about culling cows? And I want to focus on the adults. We've talked some about early weaning, but I want to focus on the adults. What are some of the strategies that you guys consider? If I have some cows that I want to cull or am going to have to cull, 
What should I start thinking about at this time of year? One thing that I that producers have, have worked with me and other veterinarians on sometimes is to try to do an early preg check because they know they'd like to cull any open cows. So why wait till the fall to do that? If, if you can get in and do an early preg check, identify those cows that are not pregnant and go ahead and get them off the property uh, as early as possible. And I think that's, a, I mean, there's some challenges because it's, you know, we're still in a really hot time of the year and, and you have to gather cattle. But if you do it first thing in the morning, uh, sometimes that can work pretty well. Now, what do you mean early preg check? So if I, let's put a scenario out. If I put the bull in on May 1st, how early are you talking? Well, a lot. Of, so let's say we put them in May 1st or April 1st or, I mean, or June 1st, any, any of those. Uh, if we're out here in, into August, uh, you can do a preg check and identify either shortbread or open cows and, and the shortbreads might technically be open. But by that time of the year, they would be kind of those late calvers. Uh, and and so, again, either late calving or open cows may be the ones you really want to target. So basically, anytime you get past, oh, 40 or 50 days past when you want the calving or the breeding season to end, or uh, that that's a good time to get in there and do some break checks. And if, you're, if you've got a veterinarian that's got an ultrasound, you can push that up just a little bit earlier up into that 30, 35 days. So you can get you can get in there pretty early. And are there any other advantages of doing early preg check or getting rid of those calls a little bit earlier? Well, one thing is is you've kind of beat the rush. So you know we talk talk about kind of the the seasonal pattern of cull cow prices, and they're going to dip most in the fall when everybody's marketing their cattle. So you can get ahead of that. And also, hopefully, again, I think it's really important to. If, if you're concerned about drought, and we are in many parts of the country, act sooner rather than later. Let's, let's leave as much forage out there as possible. So these cows should be in a little better condition than if we waited another three or four or 10 weeks. Um, and so earlier is better from several standpoints. Yeah. And Philip, I was going to ask you, am I better off to pull those cows off the pasture? And if they are a little thin, should I leave them on the pasture or pull them off and try to feed them before I sell them? Is it going to make sense to put some weight on them or should I just take them to the sale? Well, you, you got to do some economics there. So you're depending on, you know, if we got a drought and grain prices are also high, you got to, you have to feed them some grain to get condition back on them. So your um, cost of gain there may not be economical. I mean, those thin cows usually put on flesh pretty easy, pretty, pretty quick. Um, but again, you got, you got to pencil it out there a little bit. And, and the challenge is with cows, the maintenance, right? No matter what, I've got to feed her to maintain uh, 1,100 pounds or 1,200 pounds, whatever she weighs before she gains at all, which makes it less efficient. And I appreciate you and you and Bob, since Dustin's not here as our economist, I appreciate yeah. you guys talking supply and demand, it's cost of gain. Don't, yeah. Don't have Dustin around if we want to talk about economics. <laughs> made, it, made it easy. So uh, that's talking about taking cattle from the operation and having them go somewhere else. I also want to talk a little bit because I know there are operations that will add animals. And sometimes at this time of year, it may be heifers that have calved or heifers that are pregnant that I'm bringing into my fall calving herd or other adults. So I want to talk about not adding calves or stalkers, but let's talk about adding cows to my base herd. And what are some of my biosecurity considerations when I bring cattle in? Brian, what are some of the things you're thinking about? Well, and a lot of them are the same, whether we're talking about stalkers or heifers getting ready to calve. The 
probably the biggest difference. And, and we've talked about this before is, you know, if you're, if you're bringing stalkers into an operation with other stalkers, that's one scenario. But if you're bringing outside animals in with your reproductive herd, we get very concerned about that very quickly, right? Cause the potential for causing reproductive issues, um, I won't talk about the economics, but the economics of those kind of losses add up very quickly. So, uh, some of the, you know, some of the simple things we talk about when we bring in new additions to a herd, uh, we always recommend a, a brief quarantine period. So, so bring them onto the operation, but allow them to sit, allow them to uh, allow yourself to observe them, uh, for any overt signs of disease. And that certainly isn't protective for every disease, right? We have a lot of diseases out there that don't show clinical signs and we don't want those into the herd, but the, the obvious easy one is always have a quarantine period. So when you say quarantine, they need to be separate from, so if I've got a cow-calf herd, they're separate from my base herd, I'll call it. And you said brief. So is brief a week, 10 days, three months? Two, two weeks. So 15 to 30 days is probably a, a good start. Um, and when we say separate, we don't mean across the fence, right? We need, we need to have no... No nose-to-nose contact. Um, a lot of the things we can talk about transmitting into our herd, uh, they can be transmitted by that kind of contact. So, so, so a lot of the diseases that we talk about, whether they're bac- bacterial or viral, they actually live in the animal, and the animal could bring them on to our herd. And so if I have a, a pen that, that has a fence border with the rest of my herd, you're saying that doesn't really count as quarantine. Just me keeping them in the pen and they could have nose to nose contact doesn't count as my quarantine. Yeah, not a quarantine period. No, so nose to nose contact or uh, fecal oral transmission for a lot of the things we talk about, those would be the two most common routes and and certainly aerosols and manure aren't, aren't bound by a fence line. Yeah, so separate, separate water, separate feeding equipment, all of that sort of stuff, or, or at least separate feeding area. And then you said 15 days to or so for the quarantine or up to a month. And a lot of that's based on the time period that it would take if they weren't looking sick, that that might take them to get sick. But Bob Bryan said this doesn't work for every disease. Yeah, there's some diseases that have what we call persistent carrier states or, you know, know, an animal that isn't apparently sick, but can still carry that germ for a very long period of time. And a couple of diseases that we have good tests for and that are important are BVD, bovine viral diarrhea, and trichomoniasis. Now, they're two pretty different diseases, but what is similar about them is they both have these long-term permanent carrier states, and we have good diagnostic testing methods to identify those animals. So for trichomoniasis, that's for bulls that we're bringing onto the operation. Uh, we would want to do some testing of bulls that we brought on. And BVD, um, we have couple of good tests, but they basically involve using a a skin sample, actually. Uh, And so those are two things that we may want to work with. And and your veterinarian is is a great resource to kind of figure out when and how to use those tests. Uh, There's also a couple of really good online uh, tools, BVD Consult and Trick Consult. Those are both online tools that kind of help walk walk a producer and a veterinarian through uh, how to set up the biosecurity for those two diseases. So the the BVD and the trick, and you talked about the consult. So if I don't know my status or if I don't know the best testing strategy or who to test, you can walk through those consults and that'll help me figure that out? 
That, that's exactly right. And, and, you know, this isn't highly, highly complex, but it's different for each herd. And so you kind of need a herd-specific, situationally-specific uh, answer to that question of who to test, when to test. And those consults um, basically allow you to kind of walk through a series of questions and kind of develop a, a herd-specific plan. Yeah, and I wanted to ask one more thing, though, is as you think about those chronic diseases, or you called it a persistent carrier state, but wouldn't they look sick? Or wouldn't they look off or maybe different than other animals? Well, in, in those two diseases, no, they actually don't. And this is a great uh, compliment to what uh, Dr. Lubers was saying is some of the diseases we're concerned about, they'll show signs of illness. Maybe not today, but over the next 10 days, two weeks, three weeks, they will show signs of illness if they have that disease. So that, that's why quarantine is really important for some ways of protecting your herd. But some other diseases really don't show those signs. And so in that case, it, you're talking about using some diagnostic tests. So you really combine, there, there's more to herd biosecurity than just quarantine or just testing. It actually involves several aspects. Okay. So are there anything else, Philip, that I would want to think about as I'm thinking about bringing cattle in? Any other things I should consider? Well, one thing... Make sure you know the source herd and information from the source herd. Where where do you get the animals from? What's their history of those uh, transmissible diseases? Yeah, absolutely. If I can, if I can source them, and, and I may not be able to, right? Sometimes I'm getting them from a, a sale or they may be put together from several locations in which the stuff you guys are talking about is even more important, right? And the testing that you're talking about, Bob, if... If, as Philip mentioned, if I know the history on the source herd, do I still need to do testing? Possibly not. I think that's one one of those uh, questions that, that you really look at the risk assessment, basically. And that's something, again, uh, work with your veterinarian and, and, and decide what's really, the, the more information I have, well, then the more information I have. And, and that should impact the decisions that I make. But when I, when I don't have very much information, I'm probably going to be a little bit more cautious and, and uh, active in my testing. Absolutely. And I need to think about some of those things as before I go and get the cattle and bring them home. And this leads us to our BCI Cattle Chat checklist for this week, which is on our top considerations for bringing new animals into your herd. Our BCI Cattle Chat checklist this week are on our considerations for adding cattle to your herd. Number five, know the local and state regulations for importing cattle. Number four, Collect information on the source herd. Number three, consider testing for those diseases that have a chronic or persistent carrier state. Number two, keep new arrivals separate from your base herd for 30 days. And number one, monitor closely for any signs of disease. And that's our BCI Cattle Chat Checklist for this week. Our BCI Research Roundup this week We've got the chance to visit with Kristen Smith, who is a student here at Kansas State, and she's working on her PhD, doing a lot of work with data from feed yards and looking at late-day bovine respiratory disease. So when we think about late-day bovine respiratory disease, Kristen, why, why are you looking into this? So this question originally arose because a lot of producers have come to us and asked and commented that we're seeing a lot more respiratory disease when the animals are heavier and farther along on feed. And so previously, we've always thought of respiratory disease as something that happens a lot within the first 45 or so days. But now we're trying to look at what might be causing this later on in the feeding period. 
how much data are you looking at, Kristen? So we have about 400,000 first treatment BRD poles, which represents when the feed yard is at capacity, a little over 2 million animals. So as you're evaluating late day BRD, are there any risk factors or things that you found that's different about those cattle that tend to have more late day BRD than what we'd expect maybe a typical earlier BRD period? What we've found so far is that animals that arrived in the second quarter, so that's April through June, have tended to have higher rate of late day respiratory disease poles. So when we think about early BRD or a typical BRD, we know that often calves that are lighter in weight or calves that come in in the fall have a little bit higher risk for bovine respiratory disease in general. Are you finding some of those same things like weight associations or gender associations with these late day BRD cases? So that's a great question. Some of the things we've looked at are those arrival weight, arrival month, gender, um, size of pen when they come into the feedlot. And so far, we haven't seen an association with those risk factors. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the other things that we see when I think of BRD and I think of BRD in the fall and maybe an outbreak, I think of lots of clustering of those cases. And I know with some of the late day BRD, we've seen some of those can be sporadic within a pen. Is that correct? Or are they clustered as well? That's very correct. And sometimes we'll get a whole lot of respiratory disease right upon arrival. And then you'll see a lot of sporadic cases throughout the rest of their time on feed. Absolutely. Thanks, Kristen. We appreciate you joining us for a, a bit today. And we want to learn more about your research in the future. Thank you so much. Guys, several things have been in the news about sustainability, greenhouse gas production from cattle. And then, of course, we see lots of new stuff coming out. So there's talk about products that from seaweed or other products that can help reduce greenhouse gases in cattle. And I want to get you guys thoughts on how realistic are some of those potential changes. Some of them, I think, have some have some real potential. Um, so, you know, we're, we're trying to manipulate that rumen environment. And and there's there's a couple of different things that are ways to that we kind of do that as far as reducing methane emissions. So during that, that fermentation process, we can either shift the uh, volatile fatty acid pattern from the fermentation of carbohydrates to where we don't produce the extra carbon that then is converted to methane, or we can keep that extra carbon from being converted to methane. And so products that have... They're, they're, couple different ways those are a couple different ways that those products can work and if we shift the vfa pattern to keep from producing that extra carbon then that actually makes the animal more efficient and so that's a win-win we reduce methane and the animal becomes more feed efficient if we're just keeping that extra carbon from being converted to methane we're, we're reducing the methane emissions but we're not improving the efficiency of the animal yeah, and those two pretty different outcomes if you think about deploying one of those products. Any precedent for this, Bob? Well, actually, we've had some products available for quite some time. So the ionophores, uh, that's a feed additive that is uh, given to cattle, and it's both for grazing cattle or cattle uh, receiving a, a concentrate diet. And they work pretty well to kind of, again, kind of shift that microbial population so that reduced, uh, so that less methane is produced and, 
and more favorable volatile fatty acids are produced. And so we do actually have some historical precedents that, yeah, these kind of things can work. And so I'm, I'm interested in some of the research and some of the ideas that are coming out that might give us some more tools. But isn't most of this done at the, and maybe I'm missing the boat here, but isn't most of this done at the feed yard level? If I'm a cow-calf guy, is this something I should pay attention to? Should I be thinking about it on cows and pasture? Well, I, I, think, I think we have to pay attention to it, Brad. Um, obviously, there's, there's pressure on the beef industry from cow calf through the feed yard um, to to try to reduce our contribution to greenhouse gases. So um, I, I do think we have to pay attention to it. Obviously, the products that that we've used in the past and and actually earlier this year that was there was one that's now FDA approved to reduce greenhouse gases. Um, they're they're going to target feed yards because that's the the most concentrated part. Um, but I, th- I think we'll see some trickle down eventually and see some of these products that are available and practical for cow-calf producers. Yeah, and two different things you talked about, Philip. One, there's products that can just reduce methane production, which is helpful for greenhouse gas, but not really helpful for me as a producer. And then there's those that can reduce methane production and increase efficiency, which I'm interested in because I get an immediate payoff. One's short-term, one's long-term. Yeah, and... And kind of back to your previous question, you know, the amount of methane for the whole beef production cycle, three quarters of that comes from the cow-calf sector and from the, the, the grazing sector. And so we really, to make some big improvements, we really got to try to target that sector. But the, the issues around that is it's much more difficult to deliver those products on a daily basis to those animals in that situation. And so... Um, but that's where we really need to find some solutions to, to implement in that sector of the industry. But we have all, all the cows in that section and the calves spend a big chunk of their life in that segment of the industry, right? So animal wise and pounds of animal, you have a lot of pounds of animal there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. So I, I think this is certainly something to keep a watch on and think about as we, go to the next stage with some of these products. What are, what are some of the challenges with implementing? So, so Bob, I want to ask you, I, the, the article I saw was talking about seaweed and feeding seaweed. How is that going to work? Because a lot of our cattle are not close to the sea. Well, they're probably not going to be eating just green old seaweed out of the out of the sea. And, and you're right. I don't live near the sea, so I don't have a lot of experience. Because that's what I'm picturing. Yeah, is, yeah. Is, well, pitch, I don't know how well Pitchfork works with seaweed. Is it is it something different than that? I, I think it would probably be a more processed product, you know, dried down and put into a, a more, you know, something you put in a 50-pound bag and, and actually move it fairly easily that way. So, but it'll be interesting to see some of these products... Um, like many things, it have both positive and negative attributes. And so you have to look at all the attributes of each of these products, make sure that they don't have uh, kind of a level of toxicity or something like that that we really need to manage around too. So um, again, I'm anxious to see some of the new products that come out and how they fit in and what their good characteristics are and what their negative characteristics are and how we have to manage around those. I, I, I agree with I agree with Bob. I, I think the image that we're going to be combining seaweed and feeding it to cattle probably is from a from a product regulatory perspective the challenge that we've faced with these kinds of things is consistency of the product and so if we if we want to move this more into the the realm of science i think we're going to have to determine 
what components of the seaweed are effective and then have have a have a more base product than just feeding raw seaweed yeah and i think one of the things and i was at a presentation one time and they were talking about the great misnomer and probably from people like me that seaweed is seaweed and they described it as saying that it, it is similar to there's so many species so many different types and so many of them produce so many different chemicals that we don't even know it's probably like to us saying well it's grass well that doesn't tell you is it warm season grass cool season grass is it this kind of grass or this kind of grass or a pasture mix right we got legumes and stuff in there so i think just saying seaweed doesn't really tell us the whole story and probably we're going to have to distill that down and learn a little bit about what's making it work and is it working in the way that Philip described where it's just going to decrease methane or is it going to decrease methane? Because there was another report on seaweed that it was increasing efficiency, right? Am I remembering right? I, I don't know. Yeah. So I think certainly worth following. And as Brian mentioned, probably even on the cow-calf side, something we should look into because there, there may be a supplement there. But no need to get a seaweed special pitchfork at this point because you guys don't think it's going to come yeah, out. I don't think it's going to be. The picture in my head is totally different than yeah, probably reality. Yeah, that happens to me sometimes. <laughs> so speaking of reality and potential changes as we move forward. So, Brian, we've talked about regulations. We've talked about antibiotics and some of the changes that have occurred there. And just a few years ago, we went through the – VFD or veterinary feed directive, which uh, brought with it a lot of anxiety of how different things were going to be in the future. And then we have made it through that and survived and thrived. I want to talk about other over-the-counter or OTC antibiotics and what's the future of those in the beef industry? So I, I think, um, and, well, I don't just think we, we've got some guidance from the FDA and it was part of the process that also um, sh um, ushered in the veterinary feed directive that they have some concerns about over-the-counter uh, medically important antimicrobials used in food animals and so if we look back to the fall of 2018 they actually put out their um, antimicrobial stewardship uh, five-year plan. So for 20, for fiscal years, 2019 through 2023. And one of the, one of the points in there is, is they want to see over-the-counter products under the oversight of veterinarians. And so, uh, so a little more recent activity from the FDA, they are working on finalizing a guidance document. So guidance documents from the FDA are, are basically, they're not legally binding, but they um, allow the public or uh, pharmaceutical companies to know what the FDA's current thinking is on a topic, and they're finalizing a guidance document to cover over-the-counter antibiotics currently. So you talked about medically important or human medically important over-the-counter antimicrobials, and I guess my question for you would be, just thinking about that in broad stro strokes, is that most of the ones that are available would be considered medically important or one of the ones available or none? I mean, most of the antibiotics that we use in food production would be considered human medically important. And the one exception, kind of the big exception, we've already mentioned the ionophores. So the ionophores are not considered medically important. Uh, but the, you know, and really the two, if you look at where we are today after the VFD, the, <clears throat> the antibiotic over-the-counter antibiotics that we're talking about would be primarily the penicillin, 
um, and tetracycline products that are injectable. The injectable products that you can now pick up over the counter, but then they may go to prescription base. So Bob and Philip, I want to ask you guys, how big an impact do you think that'll have if they move to prescription and maybe our experience with the VFD or the veterinary feed directive will provide some guidance? I think that our experience with the VFD will help in that uh, it kind of brought to the front of our minds that we're going to have to work with the veterinarian, going to have to have kind of a plan. Um, I think, and much like the VFD, it does just take a little bit of planning ahead, but it, it does still allow us to do a lot of the things that are important to take care of the animals. So I think uh, veterinarians that, that have a plan for treating sick animals with certain diseases, you know, foot rot, pneumonia, whatever, and they have a plan and they've worked with their veterinarian um, and the veterinarian will give them the, the prescription for that, for the antibiotic that's appropriate for those types of diseases. It just takes a little bit of prior planning, but I, I do think that producers will have access uh, to the antibiotics they need to treat their animals, but they may need to do a little bit of prior planning. I think this is the way that we're moving with a, a lot of things. And as we talk about antibiotics and it's going to change and shift, and we're going to have to have some more documentation, which can lead to some anxiety as we went through with the VFD. But on the positive side, it makes us think about some of the practices which may have become habitual. Like we have used them as a habit and this is what I do and this is how I do it. And if never forced to step back and say, do I need to, should I, have things changed, then we just keep doing what we do, right? That's how all of us do. You just keep doing the things, what am I going to do today? Well, it's a lot like what I did yesterday. Yeah, exactly. And I think it is important to kind of reassess um, a lot of our, our, lot of our decisions and, and the way we're using antimicrobial products as well as other products. So I, I see this as mostly a positive. I, I do recognize that there can be some inconveniences and some changes um, but I, I do, and it's important to me that producers have the ability to take care of their animals and, and treat their animals in a timely manner. Uh, and I do think that that will still be available. I just think it takes a little bit of prior planning. Excellent. Well, we appreciate you joining us today and, and we have always enjoy your listener questions. If you have a question you'd like to send to us, or if you have a photo that you'd like to enter in the contest by September 3rd, you can send us a photo for our contest. And you can email either a question or your photo to us at bci at ksu.edu.